2: Well, hello, hello from a charming atrium in number 4 Millbank, which, as you will be aware, is just a stone's throw from the Houses of Parliament. It's a very pleasant place to spend a lousy morning. It's threatening rain, and I'm squirrel away with a voice that you might recognise from a previous episode. We did part one, un- unbeknownst to us, we did part one of this a couple of years ago, I think, and the series finale had the Houses of Parliament burning down and we return now and it's once again Caroline Chenton to talk about the second part of that the day after Parliament burnt down Hi
3: Hello, I didn't realise I'd written a prequel last time round, but turns out I did.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it kind of works like that, doesn't it? I was thinking about actually what this um, this fantastic book that we have in front of us, it's the hardback edition here of Mr Barry's War, it's just come out. A marvellous book, we're going to be digging into that as the episode progresses. But I was wondering the extent to which you conceived of it as being a biography of Charles Barry and to what extent it was really a historical work all about the rebuilding of Parliament after the Great Fire of 1834.
3: It's really a biography of Charles Barry and the struggle that he had to build the Houses of Parliament. There have been lots of work previously on the rebuilding of Parliament uh, in academic tomes and so on. And uh, a lot of work has been done on Pugin recently. But Barry, I felt, um, had an extra angle to give to the story. So that's why I decided to write it that way.
2: Yeah, we're going to have a few names that keep cropping up during this story. We'll have Smirk and Pugin and oh, some incredibly famous engineers in the back half of the story. But let's focus on that great fire in 1834. Listener, if you haven't already listened to the episode, I really think you should start there, in fact. Imagine the Houses of Parliament ablaze, Dickens scribbling it all down, a dog getting involved. It's all there, and the Houses have burnt down. Remarkably, the chap who set fire to them gets away, Scott Free. I've noticed this, by the way. The chap who burnt down the Houses of Parliament and the chap who started the Great Fire of London and the Mayor of London who represented us to the world at the Olympics hanging from a zip wire with his trousers all up around his knees, all of those kept their jobs. How did they do it? We don't know. I know you can't talk very much about uh, current politicians, but let's go back to 1834 and the smouldering ruins of the Houses of Parliament and pick up our story.
3: Yes, so it took five days for the fire engines to leave the site, and then the government and the politicians had to decide what to do with this ruined building and how they were going to create a new one. Were they going to create a new one on the site at Westminster? Uh, And there were several months of wrangling following the fire as to how that was going to be done
2: obviously we've all got the iconic image and the front cover of the book depicts it here the queen elizabeth as it is now clock tower what was it that was burnt down what was there before and what was left after the fire
3: the old palace of westminster was this really higgledy-piggledy chaotic building made up of a series of medieval and uh, early modern and georgian apartments which had over time become incredibly degraded. So it was really an accident waiting to happen. And the fire destroyed about half of the palace in actual fact. Um, The outlying bits of the palace were uh, not affected by the fire, but the medieval core was very badly damaged. What was left once the site had been cleared was Westminster Hall, happily, the original Anglo-Norman feasting hall of Westminster. There was the Chapel of St Stephen which had been the old House of Commons, uh, still tottering with its Undercroft Chapel. And there was the cloister attached to uh, St Stephen's as well that survived. And uh, it was decided that there was going to be a competition uh, for uh, the rebuilding. And competitors could enter and win win the prize. They just had to pay £1 uh, to get a, a site plan, which showed them which buildings were to be cleared away which buildings were to stay, like Westminster Hall, and which, like St Stephen's, they had the choice themselves as architects whether to keep them or to destroy them.
2: Ooh, that's that's an interesting challenge isn't it? Have we got anything that compares with that that you're aware of in uh, maybe British history or London history?
3: Not that I'm aware of in fact, one of the really interesting things about the competition for the new houses of Parliament was that this is the first time there'd been a proper, open public competition for uh, a major building so Anybody could enter, so of the plans that, that were entered, and I blogged about this on the Londonist website, um, some of them were completely crazy, because um, <laughs> all you had to do is have a pound in your pocket and you could enter just like anybody else, so it really was really the first open competition on a level playing field.
2: Uh, well, not on a level playing field at all, <laughs> if not, on quicksand. But, <laughs> on quicksand. <laughs> um, tell me, we've got some of the uh, other designs in the competition.
3: Um, so, uh, many of the competitors uh, had a struggle with one of the main rules of the competition, which was that it should be in the, the building should be in the Gothic uh, style, so quite a lot of entries came in that were classical grecian looking buildings completely inappropriate and ruled out. Um, others um, found it difficult to get away from a very churchy type. Of design, so quite a lot came in that looked really like giant cathedrals and were modelled on existing cathedrals. And really, the genius of Charles Barry's design is that it managed to sidestep all of those problems uh, and he created an extraordinary design inside that enabled huge quantities of people to circulate around this massive building really cleverly. And then, with the help of Pugin, he also created an exterior that was just the most extraordinary Gothic extravaganza.
2: Because ah. this, is, this is Gothic plus, isn't it? This is uh, the apotheosis of, of chocolate this, box this, Gothic. Well,
3: this, this, this set, the, set the pattern for what we think of as early Victorian Gothic style. And it was the collaboration between these two men that created the most famous building in Britain.
2: And I know Pugin was all about ornamenting things, amongst many other things. He, he seemed to take uh, great care in uh, making sure that every a square inch of everything was filled with ornamentation but maybe it's worth zipping back a few years prior to that and well I'm not sure whether to get this is the this is the challenge this is the dilemma of the book is whether to go further back and start the story of the houses of of parliament or go back and start Barry's own story I'm tempted to say just in passing that I didn't realize the house of lords had stood on this site for quite as long as it had
3: well the parliament has been in existence since the middle ages the word parliament was first used in a record in 1236.
2: But it was a moving, There was a mobile thing.
3: Uh, so yes, so Parliament, meaning an event where people got together to talk about things, followed the King around. So the King would summon his advisors to come and talk about uh, matters of importance uh, wherever the King happened to be at that time. But gradually it started to get fixed at Westminster. The House of Lords had got an apartment for its deliberations in the medieval palace from the end of the 13th century. (laughs) And then at the Reformation, at which point the the royal family moved out of this palace and the chapel of St Stephen's was dissolved, the chapel buildings themselves were handed over to the use of the House of Commons as their permanent home in uh, 1548. So it's at that point that the Commons as well becomes fixed at Westminster.
2: And what judgment was it, or what mood was it, that resulted, do you think, in in it being judged that now is the time that that things get a little more settled?
3: That's a really good question. Um, Parliament was becoming more powerful throughout the 16th century. It had been meeting in buildings such as uh, the Abbey Refectory and so on at Westminster, uh, and it was just felt, I guess, by that time, with several hundred MPs meeting now on a regular basis, that, that they needed a bit more permanency to their accommodation.
2: I wonder whether the administrative framework was growing up around them and needed some uh, some permanent quartering as well.
3: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. I think it had started to create quite substantial quantities of records. They needed a place to be stored. The Lord's Records were being stored in the Jewel Tower, which was part of the boundary wall of the old medieval palace. Today that's run by English Heritage, and it's a little separate building at the back of Westminster Abbey. Um, and the Commons Records were accumulating in the palace um, once they uh, once they settled there presumably before then they were just following round in trunks wherever the wherever the commons met
2: that's a bad back for somebody
3: <laughs> absolutely and after the poor, the... Old clerk, poor old clerk of the house had, had his work cut out
2: <laughs> and after the uh, fire I gather the records were, were shoved up a, a hospital ward or two for uh, f- until such time as a permanent home could be found
3: yeah, so the Commons records were largely destroyed in the fire because they remained in the palace right in the centre of the building and that was the area that was most badly affected by the disaster. The Lords records, however, survived in that Jewel tower because it was separated from the building. There was a road uh, running between the, the old palace and the Jewel tower by that time. And yes, they were evacuated to Westminster Hospital in many cases uh, and Westminster Hospital, that site is now occupied by the Queen Elizabeth conference centre on the other side of what is today parliament square
2: so we should we should probably check in with um with barry and his early travels which seem to have been quite formative in, in how he looks at architecture and I was, I was struck by the fact that this man who in the, the picture we're looking at right now uh, this is from much later uh, in his life 1851 and he looks like um uh, most Victorian portraits do. He looks like he's doing very nicely. He's got his uh, wing collar up around his chin, smoking a cigar.
3: No, it's not a cigar.
2: <laughs> it's not a cigar. He's <laughs> Well, he shouldn't be smoking that then. Um, <laughs> well,
3: yeah, I mean, that, that that's an amazing, it's an amazing picture you're looking at. That's the portrait of Charles Barry by John Prescott Knight, which is today at the National Portrait Gallery. And as you say, in it, he looks like any old Victorian industrialist, incredibly sleek. He's got his his silk neckerchief on. He's got his velvet waistcoat and his golden watch chain. He's leaning on plans of the uh, palace itself, um, and in his hand he's got not a cigar, as perhaps you would expect with somebody like Stevenson or Brunel, but he's got a pair of measuring compasses to show that he's an architect. But he does look incredibly prosperous there. But. The interesting thing about Barry is that he was actually born in very modest circumstances. Uh, He was one of 11 children of a government stationer. Um, His mother died when he was five. His father died when he was ten. He was brought up by a rather amazing stepmother. um, And he had to find his own way in the world. Um, And at 15, he got a job across the river in fact uh, in Lambeth and it's also worth pointing out and this is the really interesting thing I think about Barry is that he was born in Westminster he he was actually born and brought up in a street on Westminster Bridge Street uh, pretty much opposite where the Elizabeth Tower um, which some people call Big Ben of course inaccurately um, is today and he knew Westminster like the back of his hand so for the first 15, 18 years of his life, he was completely immersed in Westminster, old Westminster, and put that to good use when it came to entering the competition.
2: And as we see him here later in his life, within a decade of his death, actually, he, he looks exhausted. And I think there's a good reason for that.
3: <laughs> yes, uh, it's interesting to look at portraits through his life, see, see the impact of uh, what building the Houses of Parliament had on him. Uh, he's looking extremely tired in this, um, this painting. He's got, very, uh, he's got big bags under his eyes, he's got very heavily hooded eyes. He
2: has bags under he his bags. He does
3: have bags under his bags. And there's, a, there's even a, a photograph of him in his 65th year, the year that he died, which shows him absolutely, yes, worn out. So it has taken this terrible toll on him. Building the palace, you could say, killed both of the principal players in its design.
2: on which which more in a moment because we've diverted from our own diversion which was this fellow uh, in all his Victorian finery early in his life was not only uh, kidnapped by Bedouin (laughs) but was was then uh, subsequently mistaken for a Bedouin and shot at.
3: Yes he went on a grand tour he he worked in that Lambeth um, architect surveyor's firm for about three years until he was 18 or so and then when he got his um when he came of age he got a a little sum of money uh, that he'd inherited from his dad, and uh, he used that to go abroad and get get what today we would call a, almost a, a sort of postgraduate training in art and architecture. So he, he started off on a, a grand tour and he didn't have very very much money, so he hitched up with a bunch of people, and in particular one patron who would pay his way if he would travel with his companion and, um, and, and do sketches of the buildings as they went round Europe. And over the next three years, in fact, this tour extended increasingly. They ended up moving beyond the Mediterranean and um, going into what is um, today uh, Palestine and Israel, Jordan, Egypt, um, Syria and seeing some of the most amazing buildings um, in the Middle East. So and they saw
2: the temple at Palmyra, didn't they? They
3: did, and um, had an extraordinary time. And yes, there were these extraordinary episodes where um, he was sort of <laughs> chased across the desert on a camel, uh, being shot at by Bedouin and so on. So uh, yes, he had quite a racy later, uh, late, late teens, I think it was fair to say, and came back um, ready to take on the world.
2: It's not bad for an architectural course, is it, to be chased by Bedouins across the desert on a camel? No, oh, that's <laughs>
3: right. I mean, you know, I think it's important. Think think of the Grand Tour a bit like, you know, the sort of the year-off backpacking type experience that we have today. It's, it's pretty much like that. And, um, you know, the, the technical stuff that he'd learned... Um, in London was then enhanced by seeing all these extraordinary buildings in Europe and the Middle East
2: and this is important isn't it because this fellow who was was paying for him to take this tour to to accompany him was having him draw the architectural features and the, the architectural designs that took his fancy and then Barry was copying these out so he's he's exposed to them twice in that way but I wonder what became of the fellow his his patron what became of him
3: um, I've got no idea. <laughs> well, there's a lesson in that,
2: isn't there? Do your own drawings.
3: Do your own drawings. I mean, clearly this guy who's called David Bailey... Um, uh, went on
2: to not, a fantastic photographic <laughs> career, of course.
3: Not, not the photographer. <laughs> yes, he, he asked Barry to, 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 to draw pictures of, um, uh, of what they were seeing. Obviously, you couldn't take snaps um, as you went round. In addition to that, he allowed Barry to... Draw a duplicate for himself. So Barry built up this huge portfolio of, um, of drawings during the course of those three years. But then he lost the portfolio on his on his way home. I can't remember if it was stolen or if he it somehow otherwise went astray. But um, it may have been during his Bedouin adventures. But um, yes, he'd, he'd spent three years drawing all these extraordinary sites, and uh, then then they got lost. But they stayed in his mind, and uh, he used them to good effect in his later work, and particularly in the Palace of Westminster.
2: And how much of a bridge do we need between those experiences and the entry in the competition?
3: Uh, Well, not too much of a bridge. I mean, he came back to London in 1820. He set up in practice. Things were slow to... Um, start off initially, but then he got a number of um, fashionable commissions. He was very talented. He was he was a genius, really, um, and he became more and more fashionable. So that by the early eighteen thirties, he was doing major commissions. Uh, had some major breakthrough buildings, of which perhaps the most famous at that time is the Cla- the Travelers Club in Pall Mall, which introduced the Italian Florentine. Palazzo to London architecture. So, Clubland is full of these Italianate buildings, and that's down to Barry.
2: It seems like there are an awful lot of artists and architects, some of whom we've mentioned in previous episodes of the show, who are importing these kind of styles at around this time at extended grand tours. John Tone, for example, importing a lot of stuff from the southern European leg of the tour. Was this really what was going on, a lot of cultural importing at this time?
3: Uh, There was a lot of cultural importation, but the thing about Barry was that he went further than any other architect had been before. Very few architects, if any, had been to places like Syria, what is today Jordan and Egypt uh, in their travels. They, They sort of stopped at Greece, really. But Barry went further, and that really gave him the edge.
2: And you called him a genius. I suppose that needs some qualification.
3: He was a genius. He's been overshadowed by Pugin, because this great row broke out after both men's deaths between the families as to who was the most responsible. And it's my view that, in fact, they're both responsible. This is a this is a combined effort, the Houses of Parliament. And one of the reasons why we know more about Pugin and his work on the palace is because Pugin left behind a lot of correspondence, whereas Barry's. Barry didn't. He was a much more private person. A lot of his correspondence was burned by him or his sons. Um, following um, his death. So we know very little about Barry's state of mind throughout all of this. But, not not really um,
2: with the paperwork I'm beginning no, to pick up.
3: Well, I think that was, quite, that was quite common in the 19th century. Most architects would burn their... Most businessmen would burn their correspondence as, the, as it became obsolete. Pugin kept a lot of his and a lot of his suppliers kept his, so we, we do know a lot about more about Pugin. Barry's acknowledged as a genius in terms of ground planning of great public buildings. His other great buildings which still survive today are the Reform Club, another gentleman's club, and High Clear Castle, better known as Downton Abbey. But it's at the Houses of Parliament where he takes this enormous site for eight acres and manages to get hundreds of people around it effortlessly through the way that he's planned all the corridors and the spaces and the way that uh, the whole interlinks And that's one aspect of his genius. Another thing that he was absolutely brilliant at, which poor old Pugin wouldn't have been able to manage, was dealing with all the politics of getting this uh, building underway and then actually constructed. He was very resilient and able to deal with all the ins and outs and all the pressures of what was going to be a 30-year project.
2: I've got smirk lurking in the back of my mind, but I'm not sure when the right moment is to brandish him. Shall we go full smirk yet, or do okay. we need to wait?
3: Okay, go go. Cool. Full no, smirk. I, you can go full. Oh, smirk. I
2: see.
3: <laughs> so smirk. Um... <laughs> Robert smirk. They
0: said seamlessly. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Robert Smirk was the, the the if you like the, the favoured architect by the government, uh, the government's Office of Woods, which was the government department in charge of um, public buildings at that time. Oh, why, is it, why is it called that? It's got a much longer title, which is Woods and Forests and Palaces and Public Buildings and various other things, but yes, it was eventually renamed the Office of Works. Uh, yes, Robert Smirk was originally set to get the commission to do the House of Parliament but there was this big public outcry, people saying "You know, we don't want this stuff being fixed for political favourites let's have a competition, so that's how the competition came to be
2: Well, OK, so I feel like we have to start entering the phase now pretty much as soon as the competition is won where everybody feels like they've got a stake in this, everyone feels like they've got something to say You'd have thought winning the competition, winning the, the financing for it it should now be plain sailing for Barry to realise his vision, but quite the opposite
3: yeah, he developed his plans, he he revised them in the year after he won the competition, but he was still getting requests from various bodies to make space for them in the new palace, even after the costings had been done. He was having to deal with all sort of competing factions in Parliament because there was there was still a lot of uneasiness amongst some politicians about uh, the design of the building about why hadn't they moved away from Westminster altogether about the cost it was going to stack up so he was having to deal with all of that at the same time as actually just doing the practicalities of clearing the site with his contractors and um, getting in place all of the experts he needed to help him create this great building
2: that question of why they don't move away from Westminster seems quite important doesn't it and I'm slightly confused as well because we've got and there's a picture of it in the book Westminster here and these enormous buildings and it looks very um, spacious and pleasant there when talking about constructing the new Houses of Parliament though suddenly we're up against different picture altogether, the ground isn't suitable, proximity of the river causes problems. So why was it okay to put these buildings on that site but then there are all the issues about putting a new building on the site?
3: Well the old buildings had just grown up organically over the centuries and they'd all collected around Westminster Hall over the course of nearly 800 years. So when it came to actually designing completely new building from scratch, that was a very different matter. Once the site was cleared, it was, as you say, discovered that the ground was full of quicksand.
2: Oh, this wasn't known beforehand?
3: Uh, No, it wasn't known beforehand. So the buildings that were there previously were being held up by... (laughs) hydraulic pressure I guess from, um, from the quicksand and the gravel beds that underlay it so that caused a huge amount of delay and with the Abbey on one side and the Thames on the other it was a very cramped site indeed and one of the complaints about the previous palace just before the fire was that there was just no space, there wasn't enough space for all the activities that were going in there so Barry's great genius was to uh, expand the palace actually into the river So about half of the palace is actually built right out into the river, which was
1: An
3: extraordinary technical challenge, and that's how he overcame the problems of this very, very cramped site and created a building that was overall about four or five times bigger than what was there before.
2: Oh, I begin to understand this. So the the embankment follows on quite naturally from that. So this exactly. is this is about reshaping the Thames. Yes, the,
3: the, the, this is really the first example of the embankment. What Barry did with the civil engineer, sorry, James Walker, was to create what was called a great cofferdam, it was like a dry dock in the Thames, um, made of piles of wood in a rectangle, which was then pumped out, pumped free of water over 18 months, and inside that dry dock, the foundation wall of the palace was built, the water was being held back, and that enabled um, the the great terrace of the Houses of Parliament to be constructed, and once that was up, they could put all the workmen's huts onto it, and then the superstructure of the palace could follow on naturally. On, on the on the dry land, so yeah, that's how that's how he overcame the challenges of the site.
2: And the thinking, of, uh, for example, when they put the Olympic site on top of land that wasn't being used for particularly glamorous things, but there was a yeah. there was a lot of upset caused by people being moved along. What was the situation here in Westminster?
3: Yeah, so so one of the interesting aspects of of this was that people who were living close to the old palace or used to accessing the river close to the old palace discovered that all of a sudden this gigantic building was going up. So there were there were quite a few petitions to Parliament uh, complaining about... Uh, the Houses of Parliament Bill that was having to be passed in 1837 to allow the uh, construction to take place and that was really a sort of compulsory purchase act uh, in the days before planning. So people like local, local coal merchants, local tradesmen. The headmaster of Westminster School complained about the fact that all the routes for his boys to get down in their boats to the river had been blocked off. Householders were complaining that either their houses were actually going to be demolished or the sewers that were going to be required were going to cut across their land and so on. So there was quite a lot of unrest uh, amongst the neighbours about the creation of this giant new building on their doorstep.
2: Mm. And we know, of course, f- further down the river, the, the distress caused by people who previously had waterfront properties now finding there was a large patch of garden between them and the river and, yes. and so forth. So th- this was a real upheaval.
3: That's right. And really, in the wake of the palace, um, you do get the embankment occurring some decades later. It's really the starting point of, of the Thames embankment because once that projected out into the river, you could start to run a road along the side of the Thames all the way up and down and, of course, Basil famous sewers form part of the embankment as well. So it all started at the Palace of Westminster. They'd been thinking about embanking the Thames for some years before um, the palace was created but this provided the first sort of nudge towards that.
2: I want to bring in, I guess, the scientific aspect and the innovative schemes that we used in the construction of the place. But I'm not really sure what order to approach <laughs> them in. I, I, I'm hoping you can okay. walk us through.
3: Well, we've we've talked about the cofferdam, which was a major uh, initial um, innovation.
2: Right, because they didn't they didn't have the technology that we. I, I think it was uh, what late Victorian, wasn't it, that they worked out how to uh, stick things in the river to put bridge supports. Oh they, no! They figured out the technology for that, but th- this was That's before right. them.
3: This was all, it was all done by hand, so it, it was before the days of mechanical pile drivers. So all of these piles going into the river it was all done by hand. Um, the water was pumped out by steam engines. And um, one of the really interesting things about the construction of the Houses of Parliament is how it runs in parallel with the railway age. This is, this is a building of the railway age. And Grizel and Peto, who were the main contractors for the building of the palace, were also well-known as railway builders. They used their technology on the site. Um, so we've got in front of us a, a picture of old palace yard under construction. And in it, um, you can see the railway tracks that are running around the site uh, with a little steam engine pulling materials from place to place across the building site. So that was another extraordinary innovation. And the three great towers of Parliament, the Victoria Tower at the southern end, the Central Tower and what was originally called the Clock Tower, now the Elizabeth Tower, were constructed without exterior scaffolding. The scaffolding was on the inside of the towers. It was wound up as the stonework grew because the site was so cramped. And that was another um, extraordinary innovation as well. That was a constant theme throughout the creation of the building, the need to innovate, um, to create this gigantic edifice. There are other connections with the railway age as well. Some of the stonemasons who were working on the palace from 1840 some of them were killed in one of the first railway accidents and the foreman had to go and identify their bodies. Charles Barry himself was injured in a railway accident. I'm not quite sure what happened to him. Maybe there was a there was a crash and he bumped his leg or whatever in the carriage but at at one point he's having to send instructions from a sort of couch with his leg in the air uh, because he's been injured so the railways impinge on this story very regularly
2: and I mean just in passing construction at this time was a very very dangerous thing there was none of the health and safety practices that are in place now Uh, you mentioned in the book somebody being crushed pretty early on by an enormous piece of stone splatting them. On the subject of stone, though, there's a lovely passage where you talk about the journey that Barry went on all around the British Isles to all these different examples of stone in use, various castles and churches. and I mean, to say it's extensive undercooks it, really. And he, t- he took some experts in the subject as well, of course.
3: Yes, so it was, it was Barry's practice to choose the best experts he could for each, each aspect of the palace. So when it came to choosing the stone, uh, he had a little band of um, of expert geologists and stonemasons with him and the most prominent among them was a man called William Strata Smith, um, better known as the father of geological mapping. Um, he was born a blacksmith's son um, and eventually rose to become the first man to create an understanding in this country of all the stone types across Um, across the nation, how they fitted together and how old they were. So it was his work that enabled us to start dating the Earth based on fossil strata and so on. This extraordinary man at the end of his life joined Barry on his stone-picking trip and, yes, they they basically had a very jolly time travelling around um, all the great cathedral cities and university cities um, of the country, looking at the stonework, deciding what colour stone they wanted, uh, what nature of stone they wanted, and they also went to loads of quarries and took samples and so on, had them all tested. I think, um, I think something like 200 samples of stone were taken from across the country and then um, assessed once they were back in London. And eventually, the products of the Anston Quarry near Sheffield were chosen as the stone for the Houses of Parliament.
2: We mentioned the Gothic side of this earlier, and I'm not sure whether this was a forerunner of the Gothic, of the High Gothic Victoriana style or whether this was picking up on a mood and was it was sort of out of fashion before it really came into fashion or what? Uh, something in the book that I'd never heard of before but now I realise I've recognised references to was the, I guess like the Woodstock of the Gothic era which was this tournament up in Eglinton. Um, and I wondered if we could weave that into our story.
3: Yes, I think we think, we think of this building as being the great example of Victorian Gothic But, of course, it was designed right at the end of the Georgian period, and Pugin himself was very much a Georgian character, as was Barry. And, really, they're they're the first phase of Victorian Gothic. And it was a time when the late Georgians and the early Victorians were rediscovering the Middle Ages. It's the age of Walter Scott, of Ivanhoe, that sort of thing. And, yes, the Eglinton Tournament, which takes place at the end of the 1830s, is this extraordinarily nutty... um, (laughs) (laughs) event put on by an aristocrat called the Earl of Eglinton at his home in Scotland Uh, and he tries to recreate a medieval tournament with with his mates so they all dress up in incredibly heavy armour and um, decorated horses and uh, all their wives and girlfriends come along and sort of um, strew flowers in front of the procession and so on and And these are
2: actual uh, knights turning up in actual (laughs) armour
3: they're actual people turning up in very unwieldy, heavy armor. Trying to recreate a medieval pageant, and it all goes horribly wrong because there's a massive downpour, and they're so heavy because of the armor, they get stuck in the mud, and uh, all the all the tournament tents get washed away, and you know the the banquet gets rained on, and yes, it, it's a complete washout. Um, but it, but it's it's all part of this um, this revival of medievalism that you get uh, in in the first decades of the of the nineteenth century.
2: So how does the design and how does the style of the architecture, particularly the external architecture here, how does that play into the changing mores and tastes of its time?
3: Well, this is where we come back to Pugin again. Pugin, this other great genius involved in the creation of the palace, it's he who adds the gothic detailing to the palace, uh, both inside and out, um, working with Barry to create this extraordinary gothic extravaganza. And Pugin was the first uh, first architect to use historical models correctly in his designs. He would uh, would tour British cathedrals, take plaster casts of things like choir stalls and so on, and use them in his designs. So he takes a very historicist approach to the Gothic, um, unlike most Georgian Gothic, which is really just a sort of hodgepodge of um, architectural features that people like and they splat them all together and um, it's not usually um, terribly satisfactory. Yeah, that's, that's Pugin's great contribution to this extraordinary building. But the building of the palace took so long that actually by the time Barry reached the end of his life and by the time Pugin was dead, really, in the 1850s, It had been superseded by a new form of Victorian Gothic which was uh, a form influenced by the works of John Ruskin Uh, and he was much keener on continental models from Italy so Venetian Gothic in particular unlike the Gothic that we see at Westminster which was influenced by Flemish Gothic the sort of Gothic that you see in town halls in Bruges and Brussels and Louvain and so on both Pugin and Barry went on Uh, went on tours of these town halls in in the new nation of Belgium when they were designing the palace. Uh, But like I say, it was superseded by the time they died. It had become out of fashion, this style, and really only became popular again towards the end of the 20th century um, amongst art and architectural historians. It finally became fashionable once again.
2: We've talked about the trimmings. The book's called Mr Barry's War we haven't talked about the war and that's sort of intentional because I want to leave plenty of meat on the bone for the listener and, and listener I would urge you to rush out and get, get hold of a copy of this it's fantastic reading the trials and tribulations awaiting Barry and the well it's it's entirely political ire in which he finds himself during the construction of this amazing building is something to behold there's a clue as to some of the about turns that he has to do in the pictures that we're looking at right now there's two very similar pictures each of them of the house Entirely different in styles, and I know that people were leaning on Barry the whole way through, um, urging him to take account of their own requirements. There was status being asserted through the the manner in which the place was constructed and the way they wanted it constructed, and quite apart from the health benefits of ventilation and so forth. So I just wonder if we could get a bit of a flavour of the sort of pressures that were on Barry.
3: Yeah. So with the House of Lords chamber, which opened in. 1847 he was under huge pressure from the Lords to get them in as quickly as possible but actually the Lords Chamber was really the centrepiece of the whole building with this extraordinary golden throne designed by Pugin, this magnificent red and gold and wooden carved interior and the amount of effort required to produce this extraordinary space was such that there were constant delays in, in, in getting the Lords in. They, they finally moved in in 1847, but only after a, a huge amount of, of wrangling and poor old Barry had to appear before endless... Committees with the Commons, things didn't go well either. Uh, they were jealous once the Lords got into their chamber and felt that they'd been shortchanged and why weren't there they and there. So again, they were pressuring Barry very heavily to get into their chamber. They first moved into their chamber in 1850, but it originally had a flat ceiling and uh, the acoustics weren't great. Um, so they complained about it and moved out after a couple of days and demanded that Barry lower the ceiling. So the picture that we're looking at here has got sloping a sloping roof where he's uh, he's lowered the ceiling, and the sloping roof ends up cutting through, halfway through, horizontally, the stained glass windows that Pugin has designed for the Commons Chamber, and Barry is so furious about the changes that have been imposed on him and the desecration of the stained glass created by Pugin that he refuses ever to go into the um, <laughs> the chamber again. Uh, once the once the members are installed there in 1852.
2: What, what astonished me about this whole project is that um, some throwaway—I'm not even sure it was a decision—just. Um, somebody seemed to assume that the houses were going to continue to sit the whole way through all these building works, and they pretty much stayed in place, Okay, not in these uh, chambers, but they stayed in the middle of this building site more or less the whole way through the works, didn't they, and then complained about the dust?
3: Yes, I mean, that's, that's one of the great challenges for Barry. This decision seems to have just been made almost automatically, the assumption was made, by the Office of Woods. Just in the days following the fire that they were going to fit out Um, some temporary chambers on that site at Westminster and that's where the temporary houses were going to be for the time being. That's despite the fact that there were various other possibilities across London and famously William IV had offered Buckingham Palace to Parliament as their temporary home during the rebuilding because he hated it so much. But um, the Office of Woods didn't want, didn't, want them, didn't want them to go there, so they set up these temporary chambers. And yes, as you say, surrounded by this extraordinary building site, they don't seem to have made the connection between the very difficult conditions they find themselves sitting in. With dust and dirt, hot and cold, very difficult to control the temperatures in these spaces, uh, and the fact that they are essentially in giant water cabins. <laughs> in the middle of the biggest building site in London.
2: Can something be done about that banging noise?
3: <laughs> well, pretty much. Uh, you, you get to hear what the, what the members think about it. They're certainly complaining about coughs and colds and how the air quality is terrible. They can't see things because of the dust. And But nobody seems to have made the connection that this dust is <laughs> coming from outside uh, where all the stone is being carved.
2: Would that have been a smart move, do you think, for them to have gone to Buckingham Palace? What I really mean is, do you think that would have been... Uh, in the long term, a better site.
3: Uh, I think it might have it might have been a better site, certainly temporarily. Um, and there had been all sorts of discussions in the years leading up to the fire about should they move away from Westminster altogether. I think, in retrospect, the whole process would have been easier, much easier for Barry if they'd been temporarily housed mm. elsewhere, and they would have found it more comfortable as well.
2: And uh, well, we'll leave the the rest of Barry and Pujin's stories to the book. But it might be instructive just to bring what he put in place forward to the current day and look at the legacy of his architectural choices and uh, locational choices. And we know, of course, that the the Houses of Parliament now are are well due for a decent refurbishment. Uh, What's the through line there from what Barry did and what Pugin did to where we find ourselves now?
3: Well, um, one of the... Other difficulties that Barry had in creating the new Palace of Westminster was that he had the ventilation expert, David Boswell-Reed, foisted on him. um, And Boswell-Reed punched ventilation shafts through Barry's design to um, experiment with the air conditioning of the palace, um, something which Barry had no control over. And in fact, Boswell-Reed's schemes um, went largely unexecuted, but he... Uh, he created these great voids in the building design, which then, subsequently, over the next 150 years, were started to be clogged with pipework, with electricity wiring. After the Second World War, they were sprayed with asbestos uh, as a fire retardant. And it's that legacy of Boswell Reid's interventions in the palace that um, is part of the reason why the Houses of Parliament um, require this major restoration and renewal today a very substantial proportion of the work that's being proposed is to clear out those ventilation shafts and all the services in them because much of it is now obsolete unrecorded it's unclear where some of um, some of this pipe work is going what it's doing and the asbestos in all of those voids sprinkled throughout the whole palace means that every time one of these is opened up for any kind of building work, extra special precautions need to be taken to keep it safe that slows things down, makes it more expensive, so we really are living with the legacy today of the troubles that Barry faced in having to deal with Boswell Reed in the 19th century and then of course there is also the stonework issue, today the stonework of the palace can be in some cases peeled off by hand and this is down to the choice of stone that in fact that stone picking trip came up with. They didn't expect the stone to be exposed to the pollution of later victorian london Oh, of
2: course and how how could you foresee that well you
3: couldn't foresee it what you could perhaps have foreseen is the fact that the stone in some cases was laid incorrectly in the building you have to lay stone in a particular way so that the grain of the stone is correctly orientated to prevent it from eroding away that didn't that didn't occur properly either and there have been stone replacements throughout the later 20th century and early 21st century, but there's still an awful lot to do, so some of the restoration is is to do with that as well. And simply, you know, 150 years on, things like the guttering, the lead work, cast iron roof tiles, which Barry put onto the, uh, to the roof of the palace to create extra fire protection, because of the way that boswell reed 's ventilation had compromised his design in terms of safety, all of that is having to now be restored because it is one hundred and fifty years old.
2: That sounds like one hell of a restoration
3: so it 's a major, a major restoration program and uh, coming up shortly
2: um, and we 're ho- hoping are we for an invitation from Her Majesty to a decamp No, probably not
3: <laughs> no, I think that 's <laughs> not on the table. <laughs>
2: The book, uh, Mr Barry's War, which is a sumptuous, a excellent Christmas present as well, I would say. Oxford University Press, twenty-five pounds. And I know you, somebody you wanted to plug around here as well in well, Westminster. What's th- going on? I think on? it's
3: just it's just important to remind people that there are tours of the Palace of Westminster happening throughout the year, available on Saturdays and most weekdays during parliamentary recesses, including Easter and the summer and if you fancy visiting the Houses of Parliament before it goes into this great phase of restoration and renewal then just check out the website which is www.parliament.uk slash visit
2: and is that the place to go as well if we want to see the House of Commons in action and see people debating in the chamber?
3: Uh, yes, so um, you can also uh, visit Parliament uh, to to go to the debates as well. Mm. Absolutely.
2: Well, thanks for taking the time today. And until we meet again for part three, who knows what that might be. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Caroline Jensen, thanks very much. Thank you very much.
0: My heart aches far up-
2: and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Caroline Shenton. Thanks to to Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
1: results, still you, but with fewer lines.